Hello and welcome to the USERF Spotlight podcast, a weekly podcast series by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, where we take a deep dive into religious freedom conditions around the world, breaking the situation down for you. Each week, we focus on a different country, region, or topic. Not only do we analyze and explain the religious freedom situation to our listeners, but we also make policy recommendations to the United States government in order to address the immense challenges we bring to light here. Now here is the host of our show, USERF Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, to lead today's discussion. Welcome to USERF Spotlight. Today we're going to discuss deteriorating religious freedom conditions in South Asia, and particularly in Afghanistan, India, and Pakistan, countries that USERF has recommended the U.S. Department of State designate as countries of particular concern, also known as CPCs, for engaging in systematic, ongoing, and egregious violations. In our latest 2022 annual report, USERF recommended that the State Department designate Afghanistan as a CPC once the Taliban took control in August of 2021. While the State Department designated the Taliban as an entity of particular concern last year, uh, it caveated that the Taliban's designation was based on information analyzed before its takeover as the de facto governing authority. Yusuf also recommended that the State Department designate Pakistan a CPC, uh, and has done that since 2002. The State Department designated Pakistan a CPC for the first time in 2018 and has done so since, but hasn't taken any punitive action as a consequence of that designation and instead has issued a waiver in the important national interest of the United States. Uh, finally, for the past three years, USERF has recommended that the State Department designate India uh, as a CPC and despite this recommendation, the State Department has not designated India uh, among the world's worst violators of religious freedom. We're fortunate to have with us uh, today USERF Senior Policy Analyst and South Asia Specialist, Nyla Mohammed, uh, to go deeper on these issues. Welcome back, Nyla. Thanks so much, Dwight. All right, let's start with Afghanistan, where the situation is particularly dire and uh, complex. Can you tell our audience how have Earth uh, conditions changed since the Taliban seized control of Kabul in August 2021? And although the U.S. government still has not recognized the Taliban uh, as the official government, they understand them to be the de facto government. So how can the U.S. encourage the Taliban to improve their religious freedom conditions if that's even possible? Well, Dwight, religious freedom conditions in Afghanistan have regrettably worsened since the Taliban takeover. They have yet to follow through on promises they made of inclusivity and honoring women's rights within the norms of Islamic law. Essentially, anyone who does not adhere to the Taliban's narrow interpretation of Sunni Islam is at severe risk, making women and religious minorities particularly vulnerable. Pursuant to the Taliban's interpretation of Islam, women are banned from many activities, including receiving an education, working, their health care has been restricted, they're forced to wear burqas and travel with male relatives when in public, literally they're being erased from the public sphere. In fact, the building that was once uh, the Women's Affairs Ministry in Afghanistan is the Ministry for the Propagation Pro is the Ministry for the Propagation of Virtue and Prevention of Vice, which uses a notoriously violent hardline Islamic policing system. 
The ministry was reinstated shortly after the Taliban seized control of Afghanistan. They police individuals for behavior they deem un-Islamic, for example, Western haircuts, beard styles, clothing they consider inappropriate, listening to music, playing music, singing songs, gambling, drinking, and they enforce segregation of men and women in public spaces. Um, Yusuf has received credible reporting that the Taliban de facto authorities and rival militant group, the Islamic State, uh, ISIS-K, is, that's also present in Afghanistan, have intimidated, threatened, and targeted members of religious minority communities and carried out violent attacks, including executions, beatings, disappearances, evictions, desecration of houses of worship, harassment, threats of violence to members of uh, religious minority communities. For example, the Hazara Shia have faced attacks by both the Taliban and ISIS over the last 30 years, and now they face the prospect of more violence with the Taliban back in power. ISIS-K has taken responsibility for the attacks on Shia mosques and the Sikh Gudwara. Um, the Hazara community have documented and shared reporting of Taliban atrocities in Ghazni, Daekwondi, and Kunduz provinces. Afghan Christians, Ahmadi Muslims, Baha'is, and non-believers are unable to express their faiths or beliefs openly because they face dire consequences, including death discovered by the Taliban. The last known Jew has fled the country and the remaining Hindu and Sikh community face extinction. There is less than 200 individuals left in the community. Those that report on the abuses have been severely restricted. So restrictions on the media are a huge deal now. Afghanistan's economy and the people have suffered an overwhelming shock since the Taliban takeover last August. The ongoing economic crisis, freezing of assets, poverty, starvation, attacks by extremist elements on religious minorities, natural disasters like the one in Khost and Paktia. We're looking at a failed state, essentially, whose authorities are eager to gain recognition and support from the international community. But in order to gain that support, they must gain the confidence of the Afghan people by honoring their commitments. They must show change, not revenge and regression. And they really need to be encouraged by the U.S. government to show that change and be committed to it. Well, yeah, so much uh, so much to touch on there. And thank you for giving that overview, obviously. Uh... We don't we don't have time to go deeper, but so many questions come to mind. Let's let's turn to Pakistan right now. And and we've also seen that Pakistan uh, has experienced a regime change as well in a very different way. But in April, Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was removed from office after political turmoil culminated in a vote of no confidence uh, from the country's parliament. Uh, the new administration or Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif even charged Khan and members of his cabinet with the country's notorious blasphemy laws. So my question to you is, how have religious freedom conditions changed under the new leadership, uh, if at all? Oh, Dwight, you are right. Just the discriminatory blasphemy laws traditionally used to persecute religious minorities were also weaponized by the new government under the new Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif against former Prime Minister Imran Khan and his and his cabinet members. Um, religious minorities, however, remain particularly vulnerable to aggression and accusations under these laws as they continuously face threats of violence. 
members of the Shia Muslim, Ahmadiyya Muslim, Christian, Hindu, and Sikh communities face increasing aggressive societal discrimination due to the rise in Sunni Islamic extremism and continued threats of persecution via these discriminatory laws. Um, these laws have enabled and encouraged Islamic extremists to operate with impunity, easily targeting religious minority communities and those with differing beliefs. Um, we're only halfway into 2022 and already USERP has documented a series of horrific attacks on religious minority communities, most under the guise of preserving Islam. So you see mob violence and lynchings based on the mere allegation of blasphemy, targeted killings of Ahmadi Sikhs and Christians. In January, you had an unknown gunman kill a Christian priest and wounded another as they drove home from Sunday mass in Peshawar. You have the destruction of houses of worship, including Hindu temples and Ahmadiyya mosques. Just last month in June, a Hindu temple in someone's home in Karachi was vandalized. The desecration of Ahmadiyya graves, it's gruesome and ongoing. Last year in 2021, the Ahmadiyya community reported the desecration of 121 Ahmadiyya graves. The Ahmadiyya community reported over 170 graves were desecrated so far in 2022. We are only six months in. There's cases of abduction, forced conversion to Islam, rape. Um, these things remain imminent threats for religious minority women and children, particularly from the Christian, Hindu, and Sikh faiths. And many charged with blasphemy remain in prison or on death row. Um, there was a report, uh, according to the National Commission for Justice and Peace in Pakistan, says that in 2021 alone, 84 individuals were charged with blasphemy. Um, and although there's no judicial execution for blasphemy, it's never occurred thus far, many of those that are charged or merely accused with blasphemy, um, you know, they're often killed by vigilante mobs or targeted or, or in targeted killings. So you see that the blasphemy laws are used to fulfill political agendas, personal vendettas and disputes, but the religious minority communities really bear the brunt of these laws. Yeah, there's no doubt that, you know, this, this unfortunately, whether the leadership changes or not, you, you, you hit on all the issues that don't seem to go away with the laws and yeah. um, Amities seem to be the, the biggest target, but not the only target, unfortunately, in no. Pakistan. To answer your question shortly, yeah. Dwight, things have not changed. Perhaps yeah. worsened. Yeah, it sounds like more of the same. And 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 again, these things don't the, the, the laws don't get repealed and, and the laws don't change, policies don't change just because we were there was a lot of hope with Imran Khan, I recall, just a few years ago when he came in. And of course we saw how that played out. Well, let's turn, let's turn to India now. And this is a country that we've recommended for CPC status for three years. The State Department has not. Uh, designated them, but we've seen more uh, rhetoric from the State Department uh, more recently at the rollout of their report and talking about concerns in India. We've documented three years, uh, at least here, of a downward spiral. Uh, the BJP has fostered an environment uh, in India there that is unwelcoming of non-Hindus. An anti-Muslim sentiment appears to be rising as discrimination towards Christians and Sikhs and Dalits and Adivasis also continue. So can you can you tell us in a in a, a brief uh, snapshot here what has happened in India over the past six months and how can the U.S. government encourage India to change this negative tra tra trajectory that we've been uh, witnessing for for a few years now? 
so it's really hard to turn a blind eye to what's happening in India. There's been a lot happening and it's very concerning. I mean, just over the past six months, you can see the hijab ban was passed in the state of Karnataka, disputes over places of worship like the one in Varanasi, um, hate speech by government officials, continued instances of cow vigilantism, mob violence targeting non-Hindus, particularly Muslims and Christians for suspected conversion activity. I mean, the Indian government continues to systemize its ideological vision of a Hindu state at both the state and national level through the use of existing laws and new laws and structural changes hostile to the country's religious minorities. Essentially, it dictates what people should or should not wear, what they can and cannot eat, what they can write about, what they say, who they marry. And the Indian government has continued to repress critical voices, especially religious minorities and those reporting on and advocating for them through harassment, surveillance, investigation, detention, and prosecution under laws such as the UAPA and sedition laws. Just recent examples are Tista Satalvad and Mohammed Zubair. But USERF has a whole database of freedom or religious belief victims that um, that our audience can look at. It's 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 quite a concerning situation in India right now. Indeed, and and you hi <clears throat> highlighted a number of the uh, our biggest concerns there. So hopefully there'll be some more movement to 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 uh, you know pressure the Indian government to, to respond to some of these. Uh, uh, concerns that we've raised, but also hopefully the State Department will will, will uh, follow suit. Let's turn to the wider region, uh, if we could, just for a minute here. You've, you've touched on three countries that we uh, focus on in particular, but what about some of the neighboring countries, uh, particularly others like Bangladesh, we've heard some concerns about Sri Lanka, uh, Nepal, Bhutan, or, or even the Maldives. There's been some uh, reporting, and, and I know you've been following the region. What can you tell us about some of these other countries in the region, and wh where do you see the trends going? It's interesting, actually. The, it's interesting, but concerning. Um, Hindu nationalism under the BJP has been reshaping public narratives and feeding fundamentalist fringes across uh, South Asian states. You have Sri Lanka and Nepal that look towards India as a role model and their treatment and policies towards religious minorities in their own countries have started to mirror that of India. Um, Bangladesh that has traditionally friendly ties with India um, has you know, had some friction lately. Um, India's anti-Muslim policies have triggered anti-Hindu sentiments in neighboring countries, creating this vicious cycle of communal violence. So the communal violence in Bangladesh during Durga Puja in October last year echoed in India's Tripura state targeting Muslims. So on one hand, there's a targeting of Hindus in Bangladesh, and in retaliation, there's a targeting of, of Muslims in Tripura state. Um, on the other hand, then, you know, you have the Taliban in Afghanistan who have emboldened the the Pakistani Taliban, the Tehrike Taliban, Pakistan. And the Afghan Taliban are encouraging the Pakistani government to negotiate with the TTP, which essentially may backfire and give that banned group a sense of legitimacy. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, yeah, so uh, troubling, troubling uh, trends, it sounds like uh, in the region, in Bangladesh in particular. It would be great if you could conclude by. Um, by sharing with our audience some of the key policy recommendations that we've made on the three countries that you highlighted in more depth, uh, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India, 
just to give a flavor, what are some of the things that we're encouraging our, our own government uh, to do in response uh, to conditions in these countries? Well, for India, besides encouraging the U.S. government to designate India as a country of particular concern, we've recommended that they impose targeted sanctions on individuals and entities responsible for severe violations of religious freedom by freezing those individuals or entities' assets and barring their entry into the United States, um, encouraging interfaith dialogue through bilateral and multilateral forums and agreements, um, and you know, raising religious freedom issues um, whenever U.S.-India bilateral relationships, you know, whenever the U.S. and India have uh, bilateral meetings or relationships. Um, for Pakistan, we've really emphasized the repeal of blasphemy and anti-Ahmadiyya laws. Um, that that's essential. Um, also, you know, addressing extremist rhetoric often that often precedes attacks on minorities, holding accountable individuals who incite or participate in vigilante violence, targeted killings, forced conversions, and other hate crimes, and reforming educational textbooks and curriculum and teacher training material, also imposed sanctions on Pakistani government agencies and officials responsible for severe violations of religious freedom. And, you know, the release of individuals held under blasphemy law, um, prisoners of conscience. And for Afghanistan, slightly different. This year, we really pushed to expand the existing P2 designation, granting US refugee admissions programs access for certain Afghan nationals and their family members. Um, we'd like the government to include Afghan religious minorities that are at extreme risk of religious persecution in that category and impose targeted sanctions on Taliban officials responsible for severe violations as well. So there's several recommendations that USERP has given. Um, and we hope that, you know, the U.S. government, Congress takes heed on those. Well, thank you so much. We'll have to leave it right here. I want to Thank uh, Yusuf Senior Policy Analyst for South Asia, Naila Mohammed, for her insights into the region uh, and uh, highlighting some of our recommendations. You can find more information about our findings and policy recommendations uh, related to these countries in our latest annual report on our website. As always, thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on Yusuf Spotlight. To learn more about USERF and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at USCIRF. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another USERF Spotlight.